Hello, I'm Peter Smith, and this is the Bad Buying Podcast, Episode 6. I've worked in buying, purchasing, procurement, whatever you want to call it, for over 30 years now. Uh, I started as a buyer. I've been a procurement and purchasing director in both public and private sectors, a consultant. I've run a website and I'm now principally an author. And my latest book was published by Penguin Business on October the 8th. And it's called Bad Buying, How Organisations Waste Billions Through Failures, Frauds and F-Ups. So today I'm going to talk about some of the latest issues, um, potentially failures, potentially fraud actually, arising from the procurement of PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, in the UK through the pandemic. And then at the end, I have an absolutely shocking personal confession to make. So more on that later. Let's move on to PPE now. And the case that was reported last week in quite a few of the newspapers in the UK. The Department of Health and Social Care paid a supplier called Purple Surgical, a fairly small company based in the UK, for five million medical grade respirator masks. So these are not the uh, the cheap ones we stick on when we pop into the supermarket. These are for doctors, nurses in hospital situations, medical grade. Uh, and they were made by 3M. 3M was the original manufacturer. So the Department of Health paid upfront for five million of these, and they were supposed to be flown into Birmingham Airport back in June. However, they haven't appeared. Now, the supplier, Purple Surgical, was apparently going to buy these masks from another company called, somewhat unbelievably, uh, Win Billion Investment Group, based in the British Virgin Islands, uh, a well-known tax haven. And Purple Surgical say they'd signed a contract worth £21 million, so that's about $27 million, uh, 25 million euros uh, with win billion for that firm to deliver the masks but they haven't and of course the british government or the department of health has paid purple surgical up front 45 million pounds now 3m have made it very clear it's nothing to do with them they might have made the masks but this transaction has nothing to do with 3m and you can understand why they're saying that, of course. But it leaves us with a number of questions. And the first one, again, is around the wisdom of paying upfront for pretty much anything, really. Now, I know back in the midst of the pandemic, suppliers were saying that they were having to, uh, to lay out the cash in order to guarantee supply. So you can understand the dilemma that the government buyers faced. But gosh, you do need to be careful when you're paying uh, upfront before you've actually received anything. You might do it more happily and safely if it was a, a big, well-established firm that you've dealt with for a long time. But Purple Surgical, pretty small firm, net assets on their last 
company report were about 2 million. Um, so not an awful lot of uh, strength financially standing behind the company. The next point is this issue about uh, Purple Surgical paying 21 million to win billion, apparently for masks that they were selling on to the UK government for 45 million. Now, one of the regular themes uh, I've raised and talked about through this period of urgent non-competitive procurement is that buyers really need to try and understand the costs of what they've been buying and how that cost is made up. Because when you don't have competition, how do you know you're getting a fair price? And understanding the margins that the different players in the supply chain are making is part of that. So here, we seem to have had a prime contractor that was planning to more than double the price they paid for the goods and charge that on to government. So the boss of Purple Surgical has said that if he can't deliver the goods, then money will be refunded. So, um, so we'll have to wait and see about that. But I called in the, the famous detective, Hercule Poirot, to ask him if he would take a look at the case and see what he thought about the missing 45 million. So Hercule, what do you think? Uh, my friend, uh, we, have a, we have a saying in Belgium, which I think might be relevant here. It is, je stinkt uren in de wind. Oh, uh, that's, that sounds interesting. Uh, what does that mean, Hercule? It means uh, it smells very bad. I think you will never see that money again. Back in the spring of this year, in the peak of the pandemic, there was a huge shortage of PPE in the UK and indeed elsewhere. The British government and the National Health Service appealed for help and literally thousands of firms and individuals made offers to supply PPE. That ranged from little old ladies, or little old men for that matter, literally offering to knit face masks in their living rooms, through to huge firms offering to set up new factories in the UK, and many middlemen and agents who said they could find supply of PPE in China, Turkey or wherever. Now, clearly, the government had to have a process to sort through these offers, which ones were feasible and might actually pay off. Until recently, we had no visibility, though, of what that process was. How did they make those decisions? What we do know is some of the outcomes, where firms who didn't have any track record of supplying PPE ended up winning huge contracts, over £200 million in some cases. Firms like Pestfix, a pest control company, or Aanda Capital, which was a, an investment firm. And some of those firms, not all by any means, but some appear to have connections to the ruling Conservative Party uh, in, in the UK as well. The Good Law Project are digging into these issues, and they've actually started a judicial review process to look at what's happened in some of those procurements. Uh, and we should say in all the, these cases, there was no open competition. 
And recently, the Good Law Project obtained a flowchart showing that very process by which offers of PPE uh, seem to have been handled. And on that chart, there's something that's called a VIP route. There is also a note saying, support provided from high profile contacts require a rapid response and managing through the process, therefore are managed through the high priority appraisals team. So it looks possible that being defined as a VIP got you priority of some sort. But what made you a VIP? I mean, if the Queen had offered to start knitting, then of course I can understand why you'd want to handle her offer quite quickly and carefully. Or was it a case of knowing someone on the inside? A politician, a civil servant, a special advisor maybe, who could get you onto that accelerated or preferred list? And once you were defined as a VIP, did that get you to the top of the queue for actually making offers? We don't know that, but obviously that's a suspicion that VIPs were favoured in some way. Now, why does that matter? You might say, well, as long as those firms did actually supply the PPE we needed, uh, that's OK. You know, these things happen in a crisis. But transparency and equal treatment are fundamental principles of public procurement, and they should be for private sector procurement too. Transparency has a number of aspects, and one is that suppliers should know what they need to do in order to win contracts. They should know how supplier selection decisions are going to be made. And equal treatment, or fairness if you like, is absolutely key. If you want suppliers to make the effort of bidding to supply you, it seems reasonable that you're going to treat them fairly. And giving privileged access for any reason breaks those principles. But as well as the immediate feeling of it's just not fair, it can have a corrosive effect on public procurement generally. If we get to a position where it's who you know rather than how good your product or service really is, then we've got a problem. Let's turn that into a little story. Imagine you're a business that wants to supply government and you develop a really great product, you know, best in the market, and you start trying to sell it to any public sector body. But you find you don't win contracts. Other firms that seem to know the right people win instead. You ask a few questions and someone in the know suggests that maybe if you appointed a retired politician or a retired senior civil servant, as a consultant, an advisor, they could help you. But your budgets are tight, you're a fairly small firm. You were thinking of investing, on investing in improving your product, perhaps some new equipment. But that £100,000 you could spend instead engaging Sir Tufton Bufton uh, to act as your advisor this year. After a bit of thinking, Sir Tufton comes on board. And a few months later, he suggests that if you could give him a budget for entertaining, he can put the word into a few ministerial ears over a nice dinner at a, a Westminster Michelin-starred restaurant. That's more out of your budget, of course, so you have to cut back on your customer service a bit. Then uh, he mentions that there's a special advisor who could be very helpful in getting you to the top of this priority list, um, but she'd really appreciate a donation to her uh, her think tank that she set up. 
So another few thousand disappears. The point is that if firms start thinking that the best way to win public contracts is to spend money buying influence or priority or even to bribe people, then the firm will start to focus its resources and efforts into doing that effectively. And they'll worry less about writing a great bid, developing better products or services, or just doing the work well. And then the even more serious knock-on effect in some ways is that decent firms start thinking, what's the point? They either move over to the dark side as well and start on that dodgy route, or they withdraw from the market or from that customer or even that country altogether where we've got countries that really suffer from endemic corruption. And this can lead to a downward spiral where supplier performance gets worse and worse because that doesn't really matter and corruption becomes endemic, maybe even spreading into personal life too. You know, the additional payment you have to make in some countries to get your driving license approved, for instance. And when we see corruption like this, of course, money is in effect being extracted from the public sector. Buyers pay over the odds to fund the bribes or fund the extra costs for the supplier. And that takes resources away from valuable spend in other areas. If a government's paying over the odds for what it buys to fund kickbacks and bribes, then it spends less on health provision, education or other key services. While 43% of Africans live in poverty, corruption costs that continent around $50 billion every year, according to Transparency International. All these factors mean that everyone, really whatever our jobs or political affiliation, should have a vested interest in minimising buying related fraud and corruption, particularly in the public sector. It is ultimately in all of our interests. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that this PPE VIP route was corrupt in the sense of anyone buying that status or brown paper envelopes stuffed with cash being handed over in, uh, uh, in the basement of Westminster bars. But this is a slippery slope. And I, I genuinely feel quite passionate about this. It's a slippery slope and we really don't want to take even the first steps onto it. Openness and transparency need to be at the heart of our efforts to avoid corruption and fraud in public procurement. Before we get on to my confession, a story about a stamp. The tree skilling yellow was issued in 1885 as part of Sweden's first ever set of postage stamps. The cheapest three skilling version was normally printed in a blue-green colour. However, due to a printing error, one was printed in yellow instead. This lone stamp is known as the tree skilling yellow, and only one example of this misprint has ever been found making it one of the most valuable and sought after items in the phil I can't say that word in the stamp collecting world it has at times been the most valuable stamp in the world 
uh, but it's currently in second place. And when it was last sold on the open market, it went for $2.3 million, incredibly. We'll come back to that in a minute, but now the confession. When my book was uh, finished, Penguin asked me for a paragraph or two about the author to go in the book. So I wrote something about my background and all the usual stuff you put in. And I said, Peter has an MA in mathematics from St. John's College, Cambridge University, and is a fellow and past president of the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply, which is all true. When the prelims came back a few weeks later, so that's all the stuff that goes at the front and the back of the book, um, they'd obviously decided I'd, I'd written too much and they'd uh, compressed it, edited it a bit. So it now said, Peter has an MA in mathematics from Cambridge University, where he is now a fellow. So the fellow of SIPS had somehow been rolled into uh, the fellow at Cambridge. And unfortunately, I'm definitely not a fellow at Cambridge. Um, I won't tell you what I got in my first two years of studying maths, but it's, it's not anywhere near a level that would likely get you a fellowship. I mean, it'd be great to be a fellow, don't get me wrong. Um, so I went back to Penguin and said, hang on a minute, this, this is wrong. I'm not a fellow at Cambridge, it was SIPS. And a few days later, the young lady came back and said, oh, I'm really sorry, it's gone, gone to print. We didn't get in there quickly enough. So the first print run of my book, Bad Buying, How Organisations Waste Billions Through Failures, Frauds and Fuck-Ups, um, has, a, a, has a failure in it, which is quite ironic. What it does mean, though, because we'll correct that for any, any future print runs, and it looks like there will be at least one more, uh, we'll correct that. So that will make the first editions incredibly valuable, very much like the tree-skilling yellow stamp. It'll become known as, as something like the, the Fellows edition because of that mistake. And I'm sure it will be worth at least $2.3 million at some stage. Uh, don't take that as financial advice, by the way. But um, joking aside, I, I was embarrassed about it. Uh, I'm telling people because I don't want anybody to think it was a deliberate thing. I've written to my old college and apologized, uh, and it will get changed again. But it does, um, it does point out the need for close attention to detail and also getting your project planning right um, so you have time to correct things when they do go wrong. So that's almost it for this episode. Do take a look at my bad buying book if you haven't already. There's also a bad buying website with regular new articles and even a Spotify playlist because all the sections in the book have a song as their title. So I've put them all together as a playlist. We'll be back again here soon. I'm not sure what we'll cover next time. Uh, another interview, I hope. Um, probably not PPE, I think, after all the focus we've had in this episode. But thank you so much for listening. And this has been episode six of Peter Smith's Bad Buying Podcast.